Hello, everybody, and welcome to the one and only podcast in the universe dedicated 100%. Well, this show is probably 100%, 98 uh, to the greatest game in the world, Advanced Squad Leader. And I am Dave, and sadly, there is no Jeff. Jeff's rolling out a new project. My wife and daughter are out of town. My sons were home. I kept these this night open, as well as last night. I'm like, well, I better keep them open and be with my boys. And the boys are gone. <laughs> so, I didn't line up any Squad Leader games. And thought, instead of trying to find an opponent at the last minute... I would go ahead and do a little show by myself. I know this is not nearly as entertaining as the shows are with Jeff. <sighs> Having a little Diet Coke with a little raspberry flavoring. That's different, isn't it? But I'm going to do this anyway. Think of this as a all-informational show then. Critical Hit Magazine, Volume 7, Number 2. Tactical Level Gaming. It's the 10th anniversary Best of... Critical Hit Compendium Edition, sent to us by a listener, and once again, I haven't looked up who that was, but we thank you for sending that on to us. And now, we're going to get to the contents and a little review, and hopefully a lot of good, helpful gaming advice taken from the authors in this fine magazine. And in the opening, uh, there is an article on White Phosphorus by Pedro Ramos, the inside cover and you have some basic uh, ideas he has here restrictions on white phosphorus it's not in an adjacent upwind hex when there's a mild breeze do not place it in a sewer marsh or in water obstacles it cannot be placed there placement in higher elevation is only allowed across a stairwell or a single crest line and only with a subsequent die roll of 1 to 3. Or else, guess what happens? It rolls back down into your location, being placed in the thrower's location. And um, he has a chart here showing the morale of the troops and with the train effect modifier. And in this article, he has a nice chart on morale of units and their percentage of passing a white phosphorus attack. Uh, he states it this way. Uh, Next in our site is the possible critical hit and the adverse effect of a reversed TEM due to a colored 6 on the normal morale check resolution. If you have a, a 6 on your colored die, you get a critical hit. And it shows the problem faced by the opponent. The table provides percentages of passing a normal morale check by unbroken units in terrain with different TEM, with or without the dreaded 6. So if your train effect modifier is 0 and you're a 6 morale, you have a 41% chance. I'm rounding these off. 7 morale, 58% chance. 8, 72% chance. And, of course, going up. The train effect modifier of 1. So if your enemy is in a woods, you have a... 55% chance of passing with a 6 morale squad. 66% chance with a 7. 75% chance with an 8. So if you flip those numbers, you can see you get a good chance of breaking a squad using white phosphorus. Now the critical hit, a train effect modifier of neg 1, he assumes on this chart, your 6 and 7 morale squads have a 0% chance of passing their morale checks. A 16% for an 8 morale, a 9 level morale 
Squad has only a 33% chance passing and 10 50% of passing, which means 50% of failing. That's pretty powerful stuff. And of course, the numbers just get better and better as you get into the, you know, critical hits on a building, stone building. Stone building, no one passes all the way up to 10. And a 10 le- 10th, a 10 level morale squad unit would have a 16% chance of passing. And so this critical hit, this publisher is Ray Tapio. Executive editor, editor Dave Lamb. Managing editor Bob Gray. P.J. Norton. Associate editors and Pedro Ramos. Staff writers Kurt Martin, Jim Torkelson. Steve Plava contributes and Jim Thompson is proofreader. And again, this is a kind of 10th anniversary best of issue. Getting on to page two, he lists here. Uh, let's go over some, this is the like editorial, the welcome to the magazine. Now let's go over the retro scenario content of this anniversary issue. In the spirit and theme of this issue, we decided to republish many of the old classics that are no longer readily available to our hobby enthusiasts. We've taken 12 of our oldest and best scenarios, reformatted them with our new layout and clip art, and approached expert designers, such as Steve Plava, about balancing and changing them, so we think they're near as perfect as we can make them. This issue's first classic scenario takes us to the dark closing days of World War II in the Reichswald of Germany, Moyland, bloody Moyland. Next up, we travel to the east in the dark days of Stalingrad in a Pete Mudge scenario, no farther. I remember that no farther. I think that was a popular one. After reading, having read Mr. Puccio's article on the art of the pear drop, prepare your, to use your newfound knowledge in Those Normandy Nights, is a scenario listed there. Close Order Drill. I do remember that one, too. The Lighthouse. This is a really small one. It was a Steve Swan chestnut as he says um you could play that one several times in a night we couldn't leave kurt martin's route report out of the mix and bring you the very first route pack scenario printed morning in moan moen moen and we then go forward to a little police action commonly known in the korean war abong knee and um it has the m26 pershings and the t3045s in korea a pre-Korea scenario, but pre-the-game Korea. The Killing Fields in Normandy is the, best, is the spot where SS tanker Michael Whitman will enjoy his last triumphs over the British and test of nerves, that scenario. Operation Nordwind. And uh, the Grain Elevator. Eastern Front fans enjoy this classic scenario, included as a bonus in this anniversary issue, is the Stalingrad historical map for the Grain Elevator. And says, though it never published previously in this magazine, although it was printed in Route Pack number two, is what some consider a classic Brandenburger Bridge. That one is uh, famous too. I know Bob Holmstrom likes that one. And the Grain Elevator, I have that little map, and I never have played that one. I've seen it done in 3D with miniatures at a gaming convention. Actually, I just put the pictures. I can't think of the guy's name, but he was at Little Wars. I just put photos of him up on our photo stream which hasn't been updated i realized because i was doing something technically wrong when i was trying to update photos on it but i put up some new photos there take some time to check them out and you can see the miniature uh squad leader figures that the guy had at little wars and so uh that you have redone scenarios here hopefully better balanced and ready to go Turning the page, 
I'm on page four. There's an Armored Assault Tactics article by Bob Motorelli of the U.S. Army Major, Bob, Major Rob Motorelli. And one of the interesting things he gets into, and I really have to work on my half-track rules. You know, we did a show about half-tracks. We've got 100 articles about them. I've read them all, but until I play with them more and use them, you know, you don't learn things until you do them. But at least I don't. He has a little graph on page four of this Armored Assault Tactics article, and it shows the firepower when you combine the half-tracks with a four, two half-tracks, each with a 467 squad and a light machine gun in them. These are Germans. So you're talking 20 firepower factors coming out of that combination. You get 10 for each one. You get th- four for the squad, three for the German light, and then three for the half-track light machine gun on the half-track. So that's 20 firepower factors. And if it's rate of fire, you get 12. Okay, so I'm pretty sure this guy's right. The rate would go for all the lights. Firing is a fire group. And over on the next page in his article, he states, In addition, uh, this discussion will not dwell on the nuts and bolts of mounted operations, such as the mechanics of loading, unloading, towing weapons, etc., as the rules generally are very clear in these areas and need no illumination. Well, clear to maybe to a Major Rob Motorelli, but not always to me. And instead, let us look at how best to use the advantages of the mounted troops. So, for our purposes, a mounted assault is one in which the attacking soldiers are transported by a vehicle to or through the main line of resistance. And considerations before turn one is part of his article. He states, the unique status even allows them to drive right into an enemy-occupied hex for overrun and subsequently dismount in the hex for triple point-blank fire. He's saying this goes for all mounted troops. And their unique status allows them to drive right in to an enemy-occupied hex for overrun and subsequently dismount in the hex for triple point-blank advancing fire and close combat. This one-two punch, especially the overrun, is the shock effect part. The speed with which a half-track mounted platoon can act can be very disconcerting. If a mounted platoon begins the turn on one side of the board, by the end of the turn is crossed the board, overrun the enemy skirmish line, and dismounted in the midst of the enemy position, well, you can be sure you've achieved a shock effect. Yeah, that would shock me. He he continues, if broken while in a truck or half-track, passengers can continue to be transported forward, possibly self-rallying at a later point without ever routing backwards. On the downside, however, mounted troops suffer from a high degree of vulnerability than infantry, higher degree. While mounted, they may even be immune to small arms, but if their vehicle is hit, they will usually suffer a collateral attack, and if it's destroyed, of course, you have your crew survival role. There's no breaking, no route and rally to come back to the fight if you fail the crew survival role. So, yeah, that does make it very risky and an enticing target to try and knock out a half-track loaded with troops. That's for sure. The decision of how to use your assets in a mounted assault may be based on several considerations. Good analysis of your mission is essential. Know the enemy's anti-take capabilities and how to neutralize them. Ensure the train will support your operations with blind zones for dismounting and good trafficable avenues for movement. Ideally, mounted avenues should be two to three hexes wide to allow for flexibility. 
the one hex wide routers routes will do in a pinch and if the vehicles are escorted by infantry. Don't rely on threading the needle bypassing three buildings to get into the enemy position. They may have it covered. They may not be able to do it. And turning the page on page six in his article, it's a very long article, very detailed, and I've already forgotten all the stuff I highlighted. Again, because I haven't used it in a game. In this next section, he talks about trucks, and I highlighted some parts here. Of the three methods, however, the truck-mounted assault is probably the least preferred. Obviously, I think we all know this. First, the vehicles themselves are horribly vulnerable to enemy fire. Crew survival numbers tend to be higher. Also, truck passengers have their inherent firepower halved as mounted fire, unlike the half-track. If the truck moves, the advanced phase fire... The advanced fire phase... Firepower of the passenger is again halved for moving. Truck passengers cannot fire group, and trucks are unarmed, usually. In addition, trucks suffer from a quirk of the rules that prevents them from providing cover until they are destroyed. Now, I understand the intent of this rule. I don't entirely agree with it, says Mr. Motorelli. As a result, troops dismounting from trucks in open ground are subject to neg 2 and cannot benefit from any sort of armored assault as they advance. Yeah. You know, I forgot about that neg two part. Is he right on that? They don't count as cover and destroy. I think that's right, but dismounting. Oh well. On the plus side, the trucks are fast, particularly in the desert or on roads. They're a rapid way to get your men forward. If driven boldly against light opposition, many trucks are capable of crossing a border lengthwise by road in under two movement phases. At any rate, trucks generally feature some of the highest movement points around. Cross country performance is poor, however. Once you leave the road, the truck's movement is severely degraded. Check your um, terrain chart with the movement points on there. Costs. Over here he says, um, only the most desperate of situations should you attempt to actually attack mounted. Note that trucks can conduct overruns alone, one firepower, or with passengers who add one quarter of their firepower. But losses are guaranteed to be appalling. Yes, they would be. I don't think I've ever seen someone drive loaded trucks up toward me. Or to overrun. The trucks can either creep forward. Oh, here he's talking about the scenario. ASL 58. Si arrendiamo. It's Italian for all you listeners out there. And he's saying that in that one, the Italian proceeds slowly, never stacking, laying down huge fire groups of adjacent hexes. While their armor helps crack the stubborn positions, the trucks can either creep forward just behind the infantry for potential later use, or, in a more sleazy variant, actively... I just made air quotes. I know you can't see me, but... A more sleazy variant, actively run deep into the British lines to overrun broken units. There you go. Any that get destroyed will provide cover later on. Also, they will help find lanes through all those British minefields. All right. Pause here. Discuss with the part people you're listening to the show with. What do you think of the rule of having trucks, once they unload their people, return back to the home base to get more people or to get food for the guys they just dropped off? More historically accurate? Discuss. And welcome back. Now, he says, let me say here that I'm one of those who really don't like non-historical sleaze plays. Waves of trucks 
to find minefield gaps is a terribly bogus tactic. Okay, so we know now he disagrees with that idea. Eh, I do too. But Then he's got part of his article on writers. I told you it was very thorough. And he states, the major states, the advantages for riders are few, but important. First and foremost, of course, they can cross ground faster. They don't get a plus two crew exposed to EM. But neither are they vulnerable to movement open ground non-assault movement, allowing them to cross open ground at plus zero. This is a huge advantage over advancing on foot. Also, their conveyance is usually a heck of a lot more survivable than a half track and not likely to get shot up by a lone machine gun. In close combat, they only suffer a plus one dyro modifier as opposed to a plus two for half-track and truck passengers. That's the advantages of being riders. I never realized that about the close combat. Now, the bad news, riders cannot button up. Nope, they're always vulnerable to enemy small arms. Yep, as well as collateral attacks from shots aimed at their transport. They cannot fire support weapon at all and fire inherent firepower at half for mounted fire, quartered when overrunning, or if they moved. While they can fire a group with the vehicle's AAMG, if manned by a crew-exposed crewman, I never do that tactic either. Crew-exposed, fire that AA gun up there. Or have your hero do it, clinging on the outside of that tank. They cannot fire a group with troops on the ground or other vehicles, so the sort of mass platoon fires available at half-tracks aren't here. Worst of all, you have the bailout. While no longer the K... Oh, he says in... GI, the game, the old original squad leader game, GI. Riders even had to bail out if the vehicle fired its main armament. Hmm. But yeah, that was no longer the rule. Hmm. Probably found that to be not historically accurate. Riders must bail out if a vehicle enters certain re- terrain restrictions. That reminds me of a certain comedy bit Jeff and I did about that um, bailing out in terrain. That would be including orchards. Or if on a turreted vehicle that changes turret-covered arc. Then you got to get off when that cannon gun swings around. In addition, if pinned or broken by enemy fire, they must bail out. Bailing out is yet another normal morale check, so a squad hit while mounted riding on a tank could be casually reduced into one shot. Failed morale check followed by a failed bailout. Now, because of these risks, as a good rule of thumb, only elite high morale troops should enter battle as riders. I know on one of our ASL Extra games with... Rich Domovic, he rode his tank riders right up onto, uh, what's that? Who's he playing there? Mike Stubitz, guys. So, and over here on, on page seven, oh, I have a lengthy section I highlighted. He's going back to half tracks. The half track is at once. But once, both one of the most common and least understood vehicles in ASL. Odd Hybrid seeks to combine the mobility and armor of a tank with the speed and cargo capacity of a truck. First glance appears to fail in all respects, but a closer look at the half-track within ASL world reveals a marvelously versatile vehicle. First off, the half-track is invulnerable to small arms. Since at least 60% of the average OB firepower is small arms in any ASL scenario, it's a big advantage. Passengers can also enjoy this invulnerability by buttoning up further. Even crew-exposed crews and passengers usually get a plus two for fire at them. It's like you're traveling around in a wood house, wood building. So it does sound pretty cool. I mean, 
it's interesting how I hesitate to, um, you know, unbutton and fire from the half track. Well, I might get shot. Well, you know, I don't never hesitate to fire from a wooden building. Uh, even better, there's almost some sort of weapon mounted on it. Yep. Firepower can be added to a fire group with troops in the vehicle or to dismounted troops in the vehicle's hex. In addition, several half-tracks can fire their machine guns just like an adjacent squads can. In a pinch, don't forget you can also dismount those machine guns and use them as ground weapons, although this usually requires the inherent crew to abandon the vehicle. Real advantage of half-tracks as opposed to the other modes of transport is that passengers do not have their firepower half for mounted fire. Yep. And again, he gives a big example of big fire groups. In addition, these half-tracks give squads overrun capability, each half-track with passengers being capable of exceeding a 12 firepower overrun. 16 firepower if the squad has a light machine gun. And that's only the regular Germans. More potent squads and machine gun firepower make SS or U.S. mounted troops truly terrifying. A U.S. armored infantry platoon and M3 half-tracks can lay down 30 firepower fire group. 36 firepower if in an M3A1. That's a platoon. Is that That's three, right, vehicles? And up to three, 16 firepower overruns. Almost equal to the average tank overrun firepower. Hmm. Got to remember that one, folks. And he states, The single greatest drawback of the half-track, however, is its vulnerability to even light AT weapons. Usually losing a half-track is not going to cost you a scenario, but losing a squad or a leader can set you back. That's why fighting mounted, despite all the advantages outlined, is not usually practiced. Just dismounting the squad and having them assault move with the vehicle is the safest way to go. True, they give up the plus two for a plus one. TEM, but more importantly, they can't be killed outright if the vehicle's hit. Yeah, you can kill a half-track, several of them, with uh, light machine guns. And then there's no collateral attacks on people dismounted by them. And getting near the end, it is a big, long article. Half-tracks generally lack smoke-making capability, but their passengers, riders, crew do not Crew exposed inherent crews of armed half-tracks can throw smoke grenades, as per the rule F.10 that came out with the desert rules. Have them do it right before the troops dismount. It could provide them with valuable cover during that phase of the game. And the next couple of pages, I didn't highlight anything as he finishes the article. There's a sidebar on page 11, which is about snipers. And I don't see an author on this. But some sniper things to think about here. Some rules and tactics. A good rule of thumb is if your sniper activation number is greater than the minimum die roll needed, Yeah, the good rule of thumb is if the sniper activation number is greater than the minimum die roll needed, don't take the shot unless you absolutely must. A four firepower plus three die roll modifier shot will yield a pin check on a die roll of four or less. 
If the enemy snipers five or higher, passes up the attack. The result could well be a sniper. Getting one of your guys instead. And further down, without looking at your rulebook, answer this following question. Quiz show. What dire modifiers apply to sniper checks? When? That's question one. Pause. Discuss with your friends. Question two. When are sniper checks allowed? Question three. What units are eligible? Question four. What final die rolls required to affect the enemy sniper? If you don't have a clue as to these answers, then you probably get stung by snipers often. The best defense is a solid offense. When a sniper attacks a stack of your units, attack back. Most of the time, all your units will not be affected. Use them to make the uh, sniper attack or check, whatever that's called. True, they may end up TI and can't conduct a sniper check at all if they're t tried already or are pinned, but the end result can be worth the inconvenience. And he points out whoever wrote the sidebar. Along the same lines, don't be so anxious to roll that location die roll when a 2 comes up on your sniper attack. Sniper attack. It may be more effective to reposition where your sniper is. That's an option that you also have. I'd like to revisit those questions he asked, but I, you'd be appalled at my lack of ASL knowledge. <laughs> so, I'm turning the page. Page 12 has a thing called holding the line. Uh, I didn't mark anything in this. That seemed pretty basic about setting up where to put your defensive lines and stuff. It's good, but no author on that one either. And then an article by Steve Swan. Scenario design. Science or art? Cue the box art review music. By Steve Swan. And I didn't highlight anything in this article. So, I read it all, though, dutifully. He's got a seven-step process to make a scenario. Well, let's just cover some of it real quick. He says, one, read a lot. Two, research is then called for in the form of finding additional publications for that thing you want to make into a scenario. Step three, make an outline of your information. Step three A, there are facts. Get as many as you can gather. And then step three B, there are implied facts. Step three C, the unknowns. This is a list of scenario ingredients that we have not been able to gather any facts for. Are so nebulous we must make a deduction. This area usually Includes the exact type and number of weapons, artillery, blah, blah. Step four, lay out your basic scenario design in the same format used by Avalon Hill or Critical Hit. Or Critical Hit by Multiman Publishing. Or, step five. He says, I print out the first draft of the scenario and read it over. 
Step six, travel is part of his personal job. So Steve Swan uses this as part of his design process. He takes the second draft with him to work. During the day, he has time to waiting for a customer. He rereads and thinks about it. Think. Step seven, now play test. There is no step eight. Play test that puppy and get it right. He does note here that he wants to tell everyone scenario 89-A2, Bulford's Bash. He is unbalanced. He's not met anyone who's won the scenario as the Germans. The British forces are just too strong for the air assault, and they are not historical. Some players may want to try A2 again after removing one AA gun crew. Two four five eights an 8 0 counter, and an LMG from the New Zealanders. The defenses were heavily depleted historically and are too strong as printed. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if they've reissued that one with those corrections. In, I'll bet they, I'll bet they did something to that one, in for King and Country, when they because that came after this, and Steve's article, nice about design. And now, by Tom Huntington. Now I wish I had Jeff for this one. The top ten reasons why I like ASL better than D&D. Better than D&D. Well, that's Tom Huntington for you. He hasn't played... He has me as a game master in Dungeons & Dragons. He says, number ten. Reality arguments might actually apply. Number nine. Why, again, ASL he likes better than Dungeons & Dragons. All the players can agree on how weapons should work. Number eight. Instead of just making up rules on the fly, we can reference how others have officially made up rules on the fly. It's <laughs> a good one. Number seven. Only had to buy one rule book. Number six, both dice are the same shape. Number five, snipers make perfect rational sense. Saving rolls don't. Number four, I can write articles without buying parchment and a calligraphy pen. Number three, it's more socially acceptable, but still bohemian and politically incorrect, which also would be politically incorrect to say that bohemian. That's Tom Huntington's words, not mine. So I didn't finish number three. It's more socially acceptable to recount old war stories in public places. Number two, the scenario ends, which is true. I was had a guy in, down the street here playing in my Dungeon Dragons campaign. Probably after twenty games, fifteen games, he says, "Yeah, Dave, does does this does this does D and D have an ending? Does this game ever end?" I said, well, yeah, when you when your character dies and you don't want to roll up a new one, maybe it's a we just keep coming up with adventures for you. Uh so you can end anytime you want. You just kind of retire your character, you know. You don't have to keep co keep coming to the game. He goes, No, I I've enjoyed it, but yeah, I'm getting busy and I said, Yeah, it's not gonna end, so you can come back later. But I digress. Number one reason Hollywood has given us John Wayne. And given them Dolph Lundgren.
That would be some guy that starred in some cheesy fantasy film, maybe? I think, probably. All right, I am turning the page to page 18. Ooh, paratroop tactics for ASL. Paratroop tactics. By Mike Puccio. 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 His article. Opening two pages. Lots of great information. Yeah, that I didn't highlight anything in. But things to think about there. Turning the page. Talks about doing the actual paradrop. Here's something for you. From Mike. One of the few areas for airdropping players does have control over. Because your paratroops come down in all these different places. You can't always tell. They kind of float around a little. He says, one of the few areas you do have control is the selection of his initial drop point hexes. The fact is, 50% of the time your units are going to land on or around the drop points selected prior to scenario setup. Now, this is as good as it gets for the airdropping player. Great care and thought should be applied in making these selections. You want your drop points to be as clear as possible of all shoot-unfriendly, parachute-unfriendly terrain. This would be buildings, crags, dense jungles, and the like. Selecting such areas may mean that your paratroopers are landing in open ground, a situation which may render them almost as vulnerable as the drop itself. This was often the case historically, and may not be much of a problem if the initial defending forces are weak or scattered. Okay, so that's advice number one for Mike. Something else. You should always attempt to select drop points with terrain providing cover in the form of positive TEM or hindrances once you have landed. As long as it doesn't consist of the terrain types we just talked about, which were unfriendly to airdropping forces, okay? Because those require a morale check on your dropping paratroopers to land by or in them. Now, these may include hexes containing grain, brush, kunai, areas crossed by walls, hedges, or bocage, all of which have no detrimental effect on airdropping units. But once you land, you know, you can get in there and use some of this terrain for some cover. Areas out of line of sight, think about this, of defending enemy units or top hills, which may confer height advantage after landing, could be good candidates for your DZ. Drop zone, I think he means. Okay. Hilltops may also be used to block air aerial line of sight from any defenders which are adjacent to them. An airdropping player must keep in mind that an airdrop is a risky undertaking. You're simply never going to find absolutely great, safe drop point. And if you do, consider the distance your paratroopers are going to have to travel to accomplish their goals. If you find one which appears very safe, it's probably too far from your objectives. This is a consideration for the men who commanded parachute formations. I'm on page 21. Um... Mike also says, there are definitely occasions when this option should be considered. Which option? Uh, an airdrop might, an airdrop right on top of your objective and its defenders aims to overpower them with sheer numbers and surprise. This might be considered. If the players conducting an airdrop may be able to bring a concentration of force to bear on the defenders by using the initial fleeting mobility advantage, can they 
by the airdrop it's conveyed by the airdrop itself. This concentration of superior force upon a critical point is in keeping with a well-known military axiom. Airdropping forces should bear this in mind and practice it at majority of the time. For example, two wings dropping on either side of a likely enemy defensive position may be able to bring encircling fire to bear and deny route paths from the outset. Think of how hard this significant advantage is to achieve in many conventional scenarios. Keep in mind, to balance this concept of initial mobility with the proper selection of airdrop points as discussed earlier. That's some good advice from Mike. And uh, turning the page to 22, we have, um, I wrote a note, this is specific to drop zone A scenario. Oh, is that a scenario in the magazine? Drop zone A. Maybe so. So this whole page is talking about examples of how to do some paratroop drops. He's got an illustration with the map for the scenario over on page 23. All these articles are very fine print. This magazine is really only 40 pages, but it is really small print and chock full of stuff. So if you can still find this somewhere on eBay or something. What year was this published? Just thinking back now here. Oh, can't find it. But anyway, back to the pair drop tactics. Uh, page 24 ends the article. Again, he's still talking about like three pages of really fine print talking about the tactics to use in that particular scenario. Which gets me to page 25. Steel Rain, an artilleryman's view of OBA history and use in the ASL games system. Steel Rain. This article is by Jim Gunny Thompson. Jim Thompson opens up with some little narrative kind of writing about using OBA and historically and an ASL. He goes through historical perspectives from from various nations. U.S. artillery, he's talking about preparation of the major powers in World War II and their concepts for artillery operations developed uh, based off of uh, German Colonel Georg Bruckmüller during World War One. Oddly enough, the only country that didn't use these concepts was Germany until 1943, after the tide of war had turned against them. Bruckmüller identified three distinct support stages for offensive operations, one, preparation, two, support during the assault, and three, follow-on support. And then he looks at the U.S. artillery, how it was set up. He's got a nice little diagram here of the target, guy looking, or uh, observer looking at the target, reporting what he sees to the corrections person, and then that connects to the firing battery, weapon sections, lay, and fire. Uh, 
American German artillery, uh, Panzer Division, 1940, had an artillery regiment with 2,400 millimeter and that kind of information. British artillery, World War II. British artillery system at the beginning of World War II had been neglected because it was considered too scientific. The artillery officers themselves had their priorities divided between those that preferred polo to ballistics and a hard-headed minority was determined to restore artillery to its proper place in the battlefield. It talks about, again, the concepts of the light artillery, heavy artillery used. Japanese artillery is in here. It's a short, shorter section. Soviet artillery also. Uh, turning the page then, Italian, French, and Poles also. Talks about their tactics. And There's a picture here of Jim Thompson. He served in the military for 23 years. All but six years he spent in the air defense artillery has been spent serving in the field artillery. So Jim knows what he is talking about here. And he goes into the rules. He says, now I'm going to cover the rules I've had a hard time with as an artilleryman and the way I think they should have been made to make the game flow a bit more smoothly. And he recommends you can use these suggestions as special scenario rules, perhaps, in your scenario design. He says, battery access. Now, what if we use the concepts of direct and general support, as discussed earlier in this article? In the determination of artillery access, it could have been stated as part of the SSR that gave us artillery module. If it stated the artillery module was direct support, no chit draw would be necessary. Oh, I like it. If it stated the artillery module was general support, then a chit draw would be necessary. Keep in mind, most direct support artillery was light artillery, 105 millimeter and smaller, to include offboard mortars. And general support was medium artillery, larger than 105 millimeter, up to and including 155. Then he says, over here on page 29, I'm assuming this is meant to represent, what was he talking about, a rule saying that you do the extra chit draw, you know, when you can't see a target in the area or whatever the rule states next to the thing, uh, known enemy unit, whatever. The, you have to draw the chit again and then put it back in. <clears throat> he says, I'm assuming this is meant to represent a suspected target the observer th thinks is there. The author can tell you from my experience as a forward observer and from a fire direction center section chief that whether the target is suspected or actually seen the observer is going to get his fire mission if i am in a direct support artillery unit if an observer calls for an ffe and after that and after it is completed the enemy has not been suppressed or neutralized to his satisfaction he can call for another ffe that will be converting an ffec to an ffe1 even if he has to correct and get it. In my opinion, the extra chit draw should be required for any OBA except that which is designated as direct support. Now, without a chit draw for direct support artillery, this leaves the question of how we can handle ammunition status since we either added or subtracted chits depending on the status. Now, what if our status was handled by standardizing how many missions would be available dependent on the ammunition? 
Normal ammo status would be three missions. Increased by one for plentiful and decreased by one for specified scarce. This should make it a fair, fairly realistic amount of missions available in the time framework of most scenarios. And remind us of the more elegant squad leader system, courtesy of John Hill. The editors added that comment. I don't know how that worked. I didn't play squad leader originally. Just advanced. Accuracy die roll, he states, would depend on three basic factors. The forward observer's accurate target location procedures. Two, the battery fire direction center's accurate calculation of the firing data. And three, the gun's accurate lay procedures and accurate setting of the fire direction center's data onto the gun. And he goes on to talk about rule C1.3. About the black hit numbers, accuracy die roll, less than or equal to two on target. Now, if not if not accurate, C1.31 says you make a die roll to determine the direction and extent of error. The six hex maximum is 240 meters in abstract distance. A 240 meter error in a first round is not common, but possible. So this portion of the rules with figuring die roll odds is fairly realistic. And, Jim says, I, un I mentioned earlier the three basic elements for accurate artillery fires in the ASL game. The forward observers represented by the leader possessing the radio, and the FDC and the guns are represented by the off-board artillery. And we could represent the proficiency of the forward observer by using his leader's modifier as a die roll modifier applied to the accuracy die roll of the initial spotting round. By doing this, we can now add another decision that the player must make in his game strategy. Do you use your NEG-3 leader to lead the infantry? Or leave that to the NEG-1 and use the NEG-3 to get better results on the artillery? Suddenly, combining that 6 plus 1 leader with the radio does not look like such a good idea anymore. That's a good point, Jim. I like that a lot. I like the whole idea that he's got here of, you know having this two kinds of artillery what do you call it general support versus direct support and making the direct support much more available than the randomness of the artillery as it is now so designers start putting this into your into your scenarios now he says we can represent the class of the offboard artillery unit by using the class of the squad majority type in the OB uh, as a die roll modifier to the extent of error die roll. So if you're elite, you got neg one, first or second line, zero. And the conscripts are greens, you know, you got a plus one. Assuming that, I guess, the artillery people with the army group would be also less experienced if they're accompanying a lot of greener conscripts out into the field. I, I like that a lot. Oh, turning the page to page 30. And page 30. The wonderful article. I remember this when it originally came out. Chess Clock Variant by Gerald R. Tracy. I don't know. Maybe this Gerald guy 
is the brother to J.R. Tracy. We interviewed J.R. Tracy on this very podcast. You know, maybe we should interview Jim Thompson about these ideas he has here in the Steel Rain article or, um, you know, Ray Tapio himself. But this Gerald guy, probably brother to J.R. Tracy, wrote an article. (laughs) I know, it's the same guy. Chess Clock Variant. It is December 1942. He's he's also writing this um, to make it sound like a nor does it narrative writing. It is December 1942, and I'm trying desperately to fight my way to Stalingrad in the little town of Verkhnikomsky. My potent relief force has all but wiped out the defending Russians, and I o- I need only crush the remaining two three seven half squad to win i carefully plot my final player turn considering whether to kill off that dun- dungeon master <laughs> so- <laughs> sorry <laughs> dm when you're playing asl means duress morale or something like that not the dungeon master <laughs> okay i only did that because of that previous thing that uh, huntington wrote uh, the top 10 reasons okay all right again i carefully plot my final player turn considering whether to kill off that dm guy (laughs) sorry hate to lose on a self rally yeah right wondering if i should prep fire or move my mk for f2s and working to get every possible firepower factor at my disposal aimed the scrawny half-squad standing between me and victory. Finally, after considering all these possibilities and having settled on a plan of attack, I wake my opponent and set it in motion. Halfway through my movement phase, as I stand on the verge of victory, my opponent interrupts my march to glory with a shout of, Time, I win. Startled, I check the clock, and sure enough, my flag has dropped. Looks like Von Paulus and the rest of the Sixth Army will have to get out of this jam without my help, after all. Yeah, I like that, JR. That's a good write up. And I like your idea here. Tired of watching your opponent plan every player turn like Montgomery drawing up the attack at Alamein? Yeah. Uh, he says on page 30. Ray Tapio originally wrote up an experimental ASL chess clock system back in issue one of his original ASL newsletter, Trail Break. I think I have all the trail breaks. I have to go look in my little place where I shoved all my newsletters. Hey, we can go through all those. We'll easily make it to episode 200 on this show, folks. (laughs) Ray Tapio... Originally wrote up, oh, I said that, trail trail break. A friend rediscovered the article. We gave it a spin and had a blast. For those unfamiliar, a chess clock has two faces, one for each player, during White's turn. Now, JR, you shouldn't be saying White. It kind of sounds racist and, you know, just not, not very politically correct. But the White turn on his clock runs while Black's turn is frozen. There you go again. <laughs> and as soon as, as soon as White completes his turn, he hits a button, which stops his clock and starts the black player turns. 
<laughs> Sorry. If either player runs out of time before the clock the game, before the game is decided, his flag drops and his opponent wins. The final turns of a tight match with time running out are a flurry of moves punctuated by quick slams of the clock. Now, high pressure and exciting for participants and a spectator. Ray's system for ASL uses the same type of clock and varies the amount of time each side has according to a simple formula. Unlike the rules to ASL, it's a simple formula. You know, I didn't know I'd have so much fun doing a show by myself. Um, okay. So, here you go. Each side receives time equal to the number of squads, crews, radio phones, and non-AFVs times the number of player turns times 30 seconds, 0.5 minutes. JR says 0.5 minutes. That's very confusing language, JR. <laughs> that's, that's 30 seconds, I think. So, fractions rounded down. <laughs> he, he even wrote this like the squad leader rule book. <laughs> fractions rounded down to whole minutes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, reinfo- I'm not editing this show, so I'm just leaving all this in. All right. Everybody got that? So you just add up the number of like units times the turns and give everybody 30 seconds per thing. Now, reinforcements count for the m- amount of time they're in the game. So for death at Carenton, everyone knows that scenario, I hope. The Germans received 2.5 times 8 times 0.5 minutes. <laughs> it just starts to look like algebra. <laughs> but it's it's really not. Um... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's really not that complicated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I think just doing the show by myself is kind of wearing on my brain right now. No, it, it, I, honestly, I'm just having Diet Coke here. Mmm. With a little of that raspberry flavoring, you can buy at Starbucks. You know, you can actually buy the big plastic bottle from Starbucks. It's, I don't know, I think it's like 8 bucks, 13 bucks, And you can use it to flavor your hot chocolate in the winter. I was originally using it in my tea. Um, and now I've discovered... <laughs> It goes really well in Diet Coke, which I discovered when they came out with that um, Coke machine, the new Coke machines at the restaurants. You can push the buttons and get like a bazillion different like flavor combinations. Raspberry and Diet Coke. I rec- I'm recommending, <laughs> recommending it, people. All right. So. Death at Carenton. Again, what kind of a game is this we're playing? <laughs> All this death. Um, the Germans received 2.5 times 8 times 0.5 minutes, equaling 10 minutes for their starting force. Plus, 
11 times 6 times 0.5 equals 33 minutes for the reinforcements. A total of 43 minutes on the clock. Wow. Wow. <laughs> 43 minutes. You know what, folks? We can do this. You know how to play the game. Just play the stinking game. Stop sitting around thinking. All right. Um, 43 minutes on the clock. Now, for Americans, we have 3 times 8 times 0.5 is 12 minutes for the onboard force, plus 9, including the radio, times 7 times 0.5 for 31 minutes for a total of, here, here, you know, here's the important part, 43 minutes as well. A good match for time. Now, for vehicles, we slightly modify Ray's system and weighted AFVs at 0.75 minutes. Hello, my son is here. <laughs> okay, that was Aaron. We just talked about helping Jeff. Since Jeff's not here, we probably should talk about him a little bit. Behind his back. <laughs> that he needs help moving the hard cab part off of his Jeep thingy, his vehicle, car. So sounds like someone just fell down upstairs. And um, we're going to go help him do that tomorrow. And then Aaron just told me I left the water running in the sink, which is, you know, not a good thing. But he didn't clean up the macaroni and cheese like I asked him to. I had to clean the pot out, and I started filling it with soapy water. Apparently got all into making the show and just came on down. And started recording. But don't worry, folks. If water started coming down through the ceiling here, <laughs> I would have been able to go take care of it. All right. So where, where were we? Okay. Now they're weighing vehicles at 0.75 minutes due to the wide range of options and high movement point available to the units. Now, for our game of winter... winter, winter who names these scenarios? Seriously. Winter G winner, winter, touched on in the opening paragraph. The Russian has 19 minutes for Zad's start, plus seven minutes for reinforcing. 26 minutes the Germans get. Wow, it still seems short. 46 minutes. They got more stuff to move around. And no, I didn't give the Germans more time just because I lost to the clock the first time I tried it. Sheesh. <laughs> JR's a Good writer. Good writing, JR. So there you go. Now, I love this idea of using the clock. I love the idea of playing faster. Um, you know, on the other hand, it's fun to sit around and stare at the board. Oh, I could do this or that or that. But, I don't know. It's... I often get to where I want to finish the game in the night, you know, that same night. I don't like to try and save them. I got games all over the room here. Well, not squad leader games, but other games. Well, I got, I got two on the bed over there that I was setting up, pre-setting up. There's a conversation to have, pre-setting up your games. Okay, we got two ideas going here. One, talk with the people you're listening to the show with. Pause and discuss. Should you should you pre-set up your defense, especially if you're hosting a game? Discuss. 
Welcome back. And now we need to discuss this question, the chess clock variant. I, I like it, but it doesn't sound like a lot of time. Right? Are you all with me on this? All the, well, 46 minutes. Now, this doesn't include setup. Well, let's read on. Uh, I didn't highlight this part, but let's just do it anyway. Show is about an hour now. We're on page 30. Got a little way to go. Due to the highly interactive nature of ASL game turn, each player is on the clock for brief periods before hitting the button and push passing it to his opponent. The attacker hits the button for prep fire, goes straight on to movement. If the defender wants to shoot, he slams the clock, takes his shot, and hits the clock again. More importantly, if the defender says, hey, wait a sec, I want to think about this one, then he needs to hit the clock as well. Huh. Think on your own time, bucko. <laughs> Defensive fire is conducted on the defender's time, while rally, close combat, and route are all neutral, to, so both clocks are stopped. Okay, there we go. We just we got, we got just gained some of that time back that I was worried about. Rally, close combat, and route are all neutral, so both clocks are stopped. Finally, rules disputes resolved off the clock. Okay, that's also okay. Now, to truly capture the spirit of the chess clock in ASL, however, sort your problems out quickly. Look it up later. And get on with the game. All right. He says, with the clock looming over your head, you'll no longer be taking those one plus two shots just because your opponent has a cruddy sniper number. Instead, you'll find yourself looking for the most efficient way to get the job done rather than calculate the to hits, to kills... You just shake the dice and see what fate allows. Yeah, I like I like the idea. But next page. Thirty-one. This page has like a giant sidebar. I don't know who writes these. Must be like the editors or something. I don't know. But it's guns, guns. Where are the guns? And in this discussion article. It says, the first group to consider is your heavy weapons. Now, guns. These units are relatively static since they cannot be easily moved around to deal with an enemy threat beyond their current covered arc. They have an inherent advantage in that they pack the punch to deal with all sorts of threats ranging from enemy infantry, half-tracks, tanks. Another inherent advantage is that these weapons may set up hidden. This is about where to place your guns as the defender. Thinking about the task for each of your gun types and where to place them. Remember, the gun must be in placed to set up with hip, hidden initial placement, but need not be in concealment terrain. Now that said, you also need to note that hidden initial placed guns that are not in concealment terrain lose concealment more readily. I think it's when the enemy gets a line of sight to them. You know, you turn the corner and there's a gun dug into a dirt road. Can't be a paved road. And the next part of this little one-pager article. Uh, it's high time players open their minds and look at a wider array of terrain types for their guns. I'm guilty of this also, of not doing this. Let's say the opponent has two tanks in his OB and you have one gun. You plop it into that cozy stone building along his axis of advance, and like clockwork, here he comes, one of his precious tanks, right where you want it, along the left side, or where your gun is ensconced. 
ensconced. <laughs> Mine are in place. I don't know about this. <clears throat> you reveal your little battlefield surprise. Pop goes the weasel and it scratch one flat top or tank. Seems like a big win for your side and you peer up from the under the brim of your NRA cap. Expected a lock a look expected a look of chagrin, if not sheer terror. Or admit the first twitch of an impending board flip, aka unconditional enemy surrender. As your opponent throws the board over he's talking about here. Instead, you watch your opponent calmly pick a little white counter up with letters covered arc on it, placing that counter on your AT gun. With a smile that shows off his gold tooth display, he mouths, C511. Oh, C, wait, C, S E E, comma, 511. C rule 5.11. And that fixes your covered arc. Anyway, he's reminding you that you forgot the importance of rule C. No, it's not S-E-E. It is C, letter C, 5.11. And, uh, yeah, you can't turn your gun now, and he gets to move the tank by. So, And the last point that I highlighted in this little page about guns is... None of the above that have happened would have happened had you placed your gun in an orchard, a wheat field, or brush. You would not have made your gun less effective in the event it needed to change covered arc, as these die roll modifiers are doubled in a building, woods, but suffer no such ill effects in, in the other terrain mentioned. Moreover, the only advantage you gain by hunkering in a hut or a copse, corpse, I thought it said, copse of woods was the Reduced likelihood that your gun crew would be overrun. What's more, since you are already in placed, sticking your gun in a stone building only adds another plus one dial modifier over the plus two you get anyway. Non-building woods setup locations are awful, plen often plentiful and a lot less obvious, and they do not suffer from covered arc restrictions. So, he is really pushing us to get our guns out of those buildings and woods into better terrain you're dug in anyway and placed so why not all right <clears throat> page 32 interview with brian martuzas and i won't do any coverage of that then page 33 another article by major rob motorelli u.s army and the um, article, in the article, he does some more kind of historical narrative fiction stuff. And then get into page 34, wire and roadblocks and mines. Oh, my. Point number one, obstacles should always be tied to existing terrain. Three wire counters in the middle of an open field don't provide much of an obstacle, although still possibly a disrupting effect. If easily bypassed, obstacles will not present the enemy with much of a problem. So he says, think of them as reinforcing existing terrain and use them that way. Idea number two, obstacles should always be covered by fire. Classic military maxim and true. A very proficient commander once told me, an obstacle not covered by fire is not an obstacle. It's merely a pain in the butt. <laughs> Good point. Point number three, 
Use obstacles to force the enemy to conform to your will. This is the hardest thing to achieve, but also the most rewarding. As a defender, obstacles allow you the chance to seize the initiative from your opponent. So, you place your obstacles, hoping to get him to move here and there around them and channel his movement. On page 35, I made some notes. In addition, if you have pillboxes to defend, it's almost always pays to put wire on top of them. This severely restricts the enemy's ability to close combat the pillbox occupant. Yeah, that's that's a I mean you you know, often you got to jump in there and close combat those guys in pillboxes to get them out of there. This prevents him from using DCs against the pillbox until he gets under the wire and can buy valuable time for your troops outside the pillbox to brush off the would-be assailants with fire. And we see over here, of course, nothing prevents you from setting up your own units in your own obstacles. This can be particularly nasty at night. His units undergo minefield attacks as they advance to close combat yours. Oh, interesting idea. I like it. Or be stranded on wire, which hampers his CC abilities. Hopefully, pinning or breaking them before the melee even starts. This tactic can be very effective as long as you're aware of the risk to your own units, should they need to leave the hex. If they break, mm -hmm. again, at night, your units won't route so easily and so could cower quite happily in the middle of the minefield, waiting for the enemy unit to come in and try and sweep in for the easy kill on broken units. Interesting. Yeah, at night, you don't have to really route. You have the one hex route thing you going. Yeah, interesting. At night, make sure your obstacles are within night visibility range of your forward positions. Also have a good plan for illuminating your wire once the enemy hits it. Oh, yeah. Forward OPs or leaders within night visibility range can light up his attempted breach of the wire. I like it. More advice. Be wary of enemy sleaze plays, such as using dummy concealment markers to force you to reveal your obstacles. If you stop his dummy stack in mid-move, roll the die and tell him to reveal a real unit, he'll know he's found something. Why else would you be asking? The only way to counter this is by ensuring your obstacles are covered by direct observed fire. In this way, you can expose dummies by other means before they hit a minefield and force you to say something that might give up your hand. Right, okay. Dummies go into the minefields. You don't know what they are, so you have to tell them to reveal something. Right, and there's nothing there. Okay. Going on to page 36. Designate an obstacle breach force before the scenario begins. In breaching operations, it's usually best to have three elements... An overwatch force, which suppresses enemy defenses by fire to cover the breach. A breach force, which conducts the actual clearing of the obstacle. And an assault force, which will push through the breach and exploit the gap. Size and composition of these are tailored to the tactical situation. In general, your overwatch force should be augmented by machine guns and good leadership. Your breach force will naturally include any special assets you have, like flail tanks, sappers, DCs. And the assault force should be mobile may be mounted and capable of good close-in fighting if necessary. Once the breach is opened up, you'll want to exploit it rapidly. I wrote a question mark by that. I don't know. I think 
first I'm thinking I didn't understand this, but it's very clear. You know, have some dudes to lay fire on around the obstacle to keep your enemy from shooting at the guys clearing the roadblock. Have the roadblock clears with cool stuff like demolition charges or whatever they need. And then guys to move through the opening, but I'm not sure in game, ASL game, that it, like you have that many guys available to go clear the roadblock. I think that's why I wrote the question mark, or uh, once you clear it, can there be a force waiting just to shoot through it? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, he says, begin by, when you start to clear these things, begin by laying as much smoke as possible. Obscure the enemy line of sight to the breach area, as well as drop smoke directly on any overwatching positions, as you would in any game. Over here he says any anti-tank minefields set up on paved roads or bridges are easily cleared by infantry who can bypass normal clearance rules. They only need to expend one extra movement factor to eliminate the mines at the end of the movement phase. I did not know that. So, of course, I don't know anyone that puts their mines out in the open on the road like that either, but, you know, that could you could do that. This guy drives his tank up, sees the anti-tank mines, you're going to scare them off of that target. But then, if you remember that you can easily clear these things with just an extra movement factor at the end of the movement phase, you know, keep infantry with your tanks and don't be afraid of that. Page 37, he talks about the scenario A56, a good party, with all of its mines and obstacles and all this stuff as a good scenario to try these tactics with. On to page 38, I didn't make any notes. And 39 gets into River Crossings in ASL by Chris Maloney, Operation Desert Storm Veteran, U.S. Army. Chris Maloney. Page 39, I didn't make any notes. Going on to page 40 to wrap this up. Um, crossing the River. And on that page, uh, cross the river. What's the best way to get your men across the river safely? Here's a few tips. Spread out. Even though boats are not subject to non-assault movement and movement open ground, it's always to your advantage to spread out due to the fire group restrictions and quarter firepower of your passengers. Moving and mounted penalties. There's no real firepower to, to stay in a fire group for anyway. And so, no reason to stack. Spread out. Then, smoke. This is an important weapon in ASL. If your enemy cannot see you, they cannot shoot at you. When playing the Germans in Denant Bridgehead, it's... Oh, Denant Bridgehead. Yeah, there's going to be a whole game of that coming out. I don't know when. It's tempting to use 100mm batteries to blow up the French. Forget about it. Don't be distracted from your prim primary mission. A safe crossing. Wow, there's a big typo here. Like, blah, blah, blah. oh, use. Use smoke. Does anyone else's issue have that weird-looking letter? Use smoke to get your superior force across, then switch to high explosives with any remaining artillery. Another tip. tip. Support fire. You should send your heavy machine guns over in the first wave or wait till later. What do you think? Well, that depends on the nature of the opposition. The author prefers to use support weapons to keep the other guy's heads down. Supporting fire, 
across the river, keep the enemy down, pin them, whatever. Terrain and the current. The current can send you drifting into an FFE, or worse, right off the board and out of the battle. Take a look at the far shore and try to determine the best spot to land. Avoid mud flats and marshes as they can pin your men and beach boats for an entire turn. Oh, didn't know that, but don't think I'd try to go into mud flats or marshes anyway. Even when starting a movement phase in a beached boat in a marsh hex, it's a minimum minimum move to enter the hex because you're now entering from a lower level. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, point about defense. As a defender, you can set up in one of two ways. On a shoreline for maximum line of sight to the river and beached boats, or further back on dominating terrains such as hills and upper levels. Your opponent will usually be provided for in the form of supporting fire, so consider any advantages gained by setting up near the shore based on the expected loss of these units. In any case, pick out the likely landing areas closest to any victory area and make sure you have some sort of line of sight to this zone. Being in a beached boat is very unhealthy to its passengers, but only if you have a line of sight to them. Also remember, your units are in a building or woods on a river's edge. Your opponent will have to use CX to advance out of the boat into CC with you. Close combat. So, as a defender, set up higher levels to be able to see where these guys are crossing and landing into, and so on. The back cover, I guess we say here, is talking about half-tracks by Philippe Lenard, and he's really taking uh, a look at a lot of these individual guns. Uh, he points out stuff about forming fire groups and so on, but um, he breaks it down into American and British, Italian, Chinese, and French half-tracks with little notes about them. For example, uh, American, the M3A1 scout car. This truck, this vehicle uses truck movement type, and its British version, the white scout car, are listed as APC, armor personnel carriers. No mounted fire, removable support weapons. Weapons may remain on board without passengers' riders. No reference to fire group benefit as it seems. The Chinese VCL MK6 carrier is considered a carrier. Note the Belgian Army owns similar vehicles, and so on. So, <clears throat> back page has the advertisement for Berlin, Fall of the Third Reich, Battle of Berlin, 1945. Now, I had played the one that was sold by Heat of Battle, Berlin, Red Vengeance. It was published in 1997. Steve Deathlifson, um, Bruce Kirk Aldi and Eddie Zeman, and you can hear an interview um, with Steve, at least, on our show. I think it was episode 107, maybe 106 and 107. And I like that one a whole lot. And then, you know, there's this version by Critical Hit, different people. I understand that guys start designing this stuff independently, but I really hate to have... Uh, the same historical modules made by different different groups. But anyway, that's just me. So, ton of great information here in Critical Hit, Tactical Level Gaming, 10th Anniversary Issue. 
it's made for some squads and leaders game that I don't know much about that. <laughs> so, but yeah, lots of advanced squad leader material here. Good stuff. Recommend you grab it. Thanks for listening. Going to sign off now saying, remember to roll low and rally well, except when you're playing me or Jeff, because Jeff's not here. So take care, everybody. Bye-bye.